Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Lisa Bramowitz, Mr. Cooperman, I believe, has a caution on the market out one year. State the case as you see it. Well, the idea is where else are you going to go? Are you going to go into bonds? Are you going to go into anything else? You're not going to see a massive crash necessarily in stocks. At the same time, you're getting inflation. You're getting these cost pressures that we heard yeah. about from General Motors. <laughs> I will just say that he himself, in a recent interview, said that he did get a new car among others, although he traded in a 2002 Lexus for a Hyundai. So uh, Leon Cooperman, I'm sure, can talk all about the supply demand. Yeah, but he's got a 12-car garage, so we know Does where that's going. I don't know. As well. John Farrell, I look, at the, you know, I look at the debate here that we've got here on the equity markets yeah. right now, and it's what everybody's looking at. And I think we forget, John, it's expecting out six months, nine months, a year out. What does 22 look like? Deceleration. How big is that deceleration? Yeah. We're still working our way through so many huge distortions. And the analogy that I've used right now for the American economy, and others have shared that view too, is that it's like holding a beach ball beneath the surface. This was a mandated recession. Now the policy's changed. The beach ball is surging to the surface again and going even higher. We've got to work out what it looks like in 22, 23. It's a return to trend growth and what does normal actually look like? Do you know how many people come on the show, on other shows, on networks like this, and talk about the return to normal? What is normal? Oh, it's true. And that well, that's better said than what I said, John, about February pre-pandemic. Was that normal? And we really don't know in hindsight of this natural disaster. John, let's start with oil. $70 a barrel. Good morning. Brent flying year today and over the last 12 months too. Crew doing okay. Right now, WTI 66 handle. Bond yield tire by a couple of basis points, Tom. 161 on 10. Yeah, a little rebound. Euro dollar 120 yeah. muted price action unchanged on the day and futures bounce back. About four tenths on the S&P up six. Six tenths on the Nasdaq 100. Uh, very good. Now, let's get right to it, because I know you widely anticipate this. Leon Cooperman joins us with decades of experience on Wall Street and the guys and his building of a certain wing of Goldman Sachs ages ago. Someone that people hang on every word, Leon Cooperman with Omega and their family office, chairman and CEO. Leon Cooperman, we want to talk about the markets front and center, but I've got to ask you once and for all, as we have seen time after time after time, the hiding of leverage on Wall Street to get to some form of point of greed, and it always ends ugly and shakes market confidence. His Archegos and all that, that secret leverage that no one knew was there, has it harmed permanently our market confidence? Nothing is permanent. Everything is cyclical. You know, uh, it's just uh, evidence of greed, basically. I mean, the fact that after long-term capital, the industry would get into this kind of predicament again, uh, I don't know whether I would say so quickly, but get into the same predicament again is kind of surprising. And I guess they wanted to make a margin on what they lent this fella. And, uh, you know, I would say that uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Lee, John here. Good to catch up as always. Good to see you again. What do you make of the increased demands for transparency disclosures of the hedge fund community and maybe even family offices as well off the back of that incident? I don't get the idea of the family office. You know, I, I tell everybody, I'm like Hyman Roth and Godfather too, which I've only seen a hundred times. And I never get tired of it. There's a scene at the airport where right before they shoot Hyman Roth, he says, I'm a retired executive living on a pension. 
And I think of myself, I'm a retired money manager living on investment income. The bad news, I no longer have this giant income I used to have when I ran a hedge fund. The good news, I have no pressure. I run my own money. So why they have the right to regulate me uh, is beyond my wildest dreams. But look, we're in a very strange environment. A lot of crazy things are going on. I think the market structure has been destroyed by uh, a, a number of moves uh, made by government. And we'll have to just work ourselves through it. In terms of the market, you know, I, I describe myself as a reasonably fully invested bear. Uh, the fully invested part is all cyclical. You know, uh, given all these decades of experience that Tom attributed to me, I've said that, you know, bear markets don't come about because of immaculate conception. They come about because of certain fundamental factors. Accelerating inflation, we don't have that. Hostile Fed, we don't have that. In fact, I'd say the Fed is too accommodative. Um, you know, it comes about because we are, we, the market smells an oncoming recession. The fact is we're coming out of recession. Corporate profits are terrific, you know, uh, and so uh, the normal conditions that cause a bear market are not present. And I, uh, uh, the other one I would mention is, you know, a significant geopolitical event, which you can't forecast, but we have plenty to worry about China, Iran, Taiwan, et cetera. But, and I think the biggest plus out there is the Fed has created an environment where there's, there's an absence of alternatives. You know, you've, you referenced this when you were chatting before, but essentially there's an absence of alternatives. And what's happening is everybody's being pushed down the risk curve. The, the investor that used to buy T-bills, he concluded or she concluded, I can't survive on zero, so I'm going to take duration and inflation risk and I'll buy T-bonds. Yep. The T-bond buyer says, I can't get by on 1.6%, so I'm going to buy industrial credits. The industrial credit buyer says, I can't get by on 3%, I'm going to buy high yield. The high yield buyer, and there's no such thing as high yield anymore, but the high yield buyer says, I can't get by on 5 or 6%, I'm going to buy structured credits, CLOs and stuff like that, which tend to have a higher yield because they're more opaque. And the and then the bond guy who buys COL, a lady, basically says, well, I'll tell you what, the market's very high. I'm going to put 25% of my money in equities. And the equity person says, I'm going to put 2% in Bitcoin. <laughs> and so everybody, everybody's been moving on the risk curve. That will change. I have to say, while I'm reasonably heavily invested, I'm having a very good year, that I, I, I am more focused on the longer term issues since I'm running my own money. I don't compete against the S&P 500. I'm an absolute return guy. But it seems to me, if you step back and think about what's going on, it's very, very clear. We are borrowing from the future. We are borrowing from the future. If you had 100 economists on your show and you asked them, what is the potential real growth of the US economy over time? The answer would be centered around 2% real. And that you get there because 1.5% productivity growth, a half of 1% labor force growth, that determines real growth, that's 2%. You speak to a bear, they'll say 1.5%. You speak to a bull, they might say 2.5%. But the response is centered around 2%. This year, the economy in uh, real terms is going to grow three to four times potential, yet we're persisting in trying to hold interest rates at zero. Makes no sense to me. I understand, and I'll explain why in a second. Secondly, prior to the $1.9 trillion package, prior to the $2 trillion package, yep. prior to the last 10 days, $4 trillion of, of, of infrastructure spending, we've already injected into the economy a trillion dollars more of uh, transfer payments than income that was lost. So what's really going on is very simple. Prior to the virus hitting, we had about a five and a half million people unemployed. That ballooned to 23 million people. It's now down to around nine and a half million people. And monetary and fiscal policy has been conducted in a manner to get the unemployed back down to the five and a half million pre-COVID. And they're less concerned about the long-term issues or damage they might be creating. 
So that's one thing. I think we're borrowing from the future. That's number one. It's very clear. You know, the debt that we're racking up uh, will have to be paid. And unless you're into MMT, which I'm not, uh, this is going to create a long-term issue. Second point I would make is there's a, a shift taking place to the left of government. The people in charge now uh, are going to go for higher taxes. Uh, we're going to have higher inflation, higher interest rates, which I think will be a straining influence on multiples. Okay, I think inflation is going to be worse than uh, Mr. Powell, Secretary Powell, is assuming. Every company I talk to and every business, I, I came back to New Jersey from Florida. I, I'm a Florida resident. I came back to New Jersey uh, and I had the lunch the other day at the local place called the Milburn Diner. How was that, Lee? I asked the owner, how's business? It's coming back, but I can't find labor. I can't find labor. Lee, we're seeing that again and again. We see it in the earnings. You hear it in the reports. You hear it in the calls, too. So you yeah, said at well, the start of this comment, you said you were a fully invested bear. Let's take this conversation a little bit further. Why fully invested if you've just gone through all the issues you've just gone through? Well, because, uh, you know, uh, uh, the near-term outlook, the conditions that would lead to a big decline, like I said, you know, uh, uh, is accelerating inflation. We don't have that. There, you know, most importantly, we have a hostile Fed when you go into a bear market. We have a Fed that's extremely friendly. They tell you they're going to keep interest rates low, not only this year, but we're going to keep them low next year. Well, I'm assuming I'm assuming they're going to be surprised by inflation. It's going to be more intractable, and the market's going to be surprised because the Fed will raise rates sometime in 2022. They'll be forced by inflation. So uh, that's my view. You said so that it, you're it, the cyclical versus secular outlook. Yes. The long-term outlook. Let me explain. I got my Please. MBA from Columbia Business School on January 31st of '67. I was broke. I had a student loan. I had a six-month-old child. Is now approaching 55. Okay, I had no money in the bank, and I couldn't afford a vacation. So I went to work the next day. I started my career at Goldman on February 1st of 67. The Dow was roughly 1,000. And in 1982, 14 years later, it was roughly 1,000. So I, I think we borrow from the future. I expect very little action from the S&P. Uh, uh, everything I look at would suggest to me caution, intermediate to longer term would be the rule of the well, day. But Leon, how do you remain cautious if it's not bonds, right? If cash perhaps is losing value because of inflation, if equities perhaps have borrowed from the future, are you going more into Bitcoin? No, I, I, I don't know. The only Bitcoin I own, let me just say this, on NFTs, Bitcoin, stuff like that, you talk to somebody else because I tell people that I turned 78 a week ago and basically, I'm too old. I don't understand that stuff. It's crazy to me. It makes no sense. I own a little bit of gold, but compared to my net worth, I own very little. Okay. Uh, I'm basically, I am basically a stock, uh, you know, a meat and potatoes guy. I'm a stock guy. So stocks make more sense than anything else because of Fed policy. But when the Fed policy changes, I think the market's going to have a response to that. So when and you say, though, that you've got your eye on the exit, what is your eye? How are you going to exit? What does that mean? Does it mean more I mean, cash? Yeah, I would say, look, in a bear market, the winner is he who loses least wins. So, you know, when the market goes down, I'm going to lose money. I'll be worth less. I understand that every asset has been inflated by monetary policy, every asset, whether it's real estate, et cetera, uh, you know, uh, stocks, uh, bonds, for sure. I think the bubble is not so much the stock market. The bubble, I think, is the bond market. And I would say this, if that turns out to be wrong, you know, I've had a negative view of bonds for, for quite a long time. But if that view turns out to be wrong, 
and interest rates belong where they are. You don't make double-digit returns in the stock market. I believe in the capital market line. What you earn in a bond has relevancy for what you should earn in the stock market. So bonds belong at 1.5%, you probably earn 4 or 5% a year in the stock market. But what I'm looking at for the exit are traditional things. I'm looking for change in Fed speak. I'm looking for change in the posture of the Fed. I'm looking for uh, at inflation. I'm looking at gold. I'm looking at the overall economic activity. Let me say this. If I had to give you a list of positive and negatives, I'm more impressed by the negatives. Long ago at Goldman Sachs, asset management Leon Cooperman sat there and said, you got to be kidding me. We don't own enough Apple. Leon Cooperman, I want you to talk about what Michael Mobison, one of the great thinkers on Wall Street at Credit Suisse and Leg Mason has always said, is we're going to see this massive concentration of digital success stories. Can I be overweighted Apple or Amazon, or are they so much the fabric of this nation that you got to own them? Well, I own them. Uh, they're not cheap stocks, but they're not expensive stocks. Nothing is expensive if interest rates stay here. I went back, by the way, and I looked at the Nifty 50 of 1972. In 1972, when J.P. Morgan, U.S. Trust, was ruling the roost, they had the philosophy, only the right stock at any price. They don't care what valuation right. they paid, as long as they were world-class growth companies. Avon, 65 times earnings. Polaroid, 90 times earnings. Sears Roebuck, 35 times earnings. So on and so forth. The 10-year U.S. government in 1972 was 6.5%. The 10-year government is now 160. Google's 33 times earnings. It's not an expensive stock. Okay, so but, but, but Leon, this is but the heart of the matter, Leon Cooperman, and you are what I would call intellectually extremely constructive in your caution. You know that the financial media is overwhelmed by the gloom crew. Every Friday they come out, the world's coming to an end, and to their point, they're trying to avoid a Polaroid mm -hmm. or an Eastman Kodak. How do you sidestep the Polaroids that won't make it? Well, that's a function of your discipline and your approach. Uh, I, I, I look at the stock market, and I see three stock markets. I don't see one stock market. The first stock market I see is the FANG market. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, the market's been extraordinarily disciplined, I might add. Uh, you know, for somebody that's cautious like I am, uh, I have to say I'm impressed by the market action. The big correction has come in the uh, so-called FANGs that have no earnings, uh, very little in the way of revenues, and they have, they're long on promise. Uh, things like Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, they've held in very well. And they're not expensive against interest rates. Okay, the secondary, so, so they're nifty 50 today, there'll be a high failure rate, like there was a high failure rate in 1972. But what ended the nifty 50 in 1972 was a tenfold increase in the price of oil led to a global recession. You know, we need a recession well, we need a change in Fed policy to change the attitude. And until we have that, the market will play. Well, Lee, that's uh, not going to happen for a number of years, maybe. We're talking about an interest I rate. I don't know. Like I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, that's what the Fed tells you. But I think that Mr. Powell, I think he's doing a disservice, frankly, when he says the market's not expensive because of where interest rates are. If interest rates are where, belong where they are, you don't make big returns in the stock market. You, you basically, you know, the world's turned upside down. Okay, so what I was saying before, the long-term issues to me are number one, we're clearly borrowing from the future. Yeah, the economy growing six to eight percent real. Interest rates shouldn't be where they are, and we should not be injecting so much fiscal stimulus into the economy where the economy is growing off the charts. 
Okay, secondly, we have a government in charge, and I voted for Mr. Biden because I thought we needed change. Uh, you know, I voted my values, not my pocketbook. But the truth is, if you look over the next 12 months, we have more inflation, higher interest rates, you know, and higher taxes. Not particularly uh, bullish. Third point I would make is we have a massive growth in debt. This nation was founded 245 years ago. We had no national debt. Three years ago, we had $20 trillion in national debt, and that's going up at the rate of like $3 trillion a year. And that debt has to be serviced, and it's going to reduce the long-term growth potential of the economy. So, Lee, I hear all these concerns, and you're going through them point by point, and I think it resonates with a lot of our audience. But this falls into the should-shouldn't debate a lot of the time. This is what they should do. It's what they shouldn't do. It's what they've done. And we've got to accept that now, Leon, and you've got to put money to work, as you always do. So, Lee, uh, the question I've got for you is what are the signposts you're looking for, ultimately, to get you to de-risk? If you're fully invested now, and here's a whole long list of things you're worried about, what are the signposts you're actually looking for to materialise that actually lead you to de-risk, to take some money off the table? I, I'm listening to a Fed speak. Uh, you know, see how they, when they change or start to change. I look at the stock market, and the stock market is a high quality leading indicator. You know, there's no indication. I mean, the market has been very disciplined in its action. I'm looking at the price of gold, which has been undermined by Bitcoin. I'm looking at inflation. I'm looking mm -hmm. at economic growth. Leon, you mentioned earlier you're looking at Apple as one of the stocks you own. Doug you Cass Apple. writes in. He's listening down in Florida. Good morning, Mr. Cass. And he wants to talk about the post-pandemic softness that we will see in Apple, in Amazon, and the others. Are you adjusting for an Apple that stumbles after the pandemic is over? I have no credentials in Apple. I sold Apple much lower. I had a nice profit. I got out much too early. I do own, uh, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft. I do own Google. I do own some Facebook. I do own some Amazon. But I would say this, another point on the cautious side, from my days back as a strategist, at Goldman, I recall that the stock market normally peaks in line with the peak rate of change in corporate profits. That's the second quarter into June. Profits this quarter will be up 50%. Yeah. Okay? And for the third quarter and fourth quarter, will be up much less. They'll be up, they'll be up much less. So I'm watching a lot of, a host of indicators as to when to get out. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm prepared to lose money because frankly, in bear markets, the winner is he who loses least. I'm not a big short seller. I believe in the long-term outlook for what I own. Yeah. You know, I own Athene at 7.6 times earnings. I own Cigna at 12.5 times earnings. I own Mr. Cooper at five times earnings. I own Google 28, 29 times yeah. earnings. That's so bad. I own Navient uh, four and a half times earnings. You know, I'm a great believer in the capitalistic system. You know, uh, 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 when companies earn excess returns, it attracts capacity and capital and kills returns. The energy industry is the best example. Yeah. I came into this year, overweighted energy, and everybody hated it. It was 3% of the S&P down. And you crushed it. And you absolutely crushed it, Leon, when it came yeah, yeah. to energy stocks. Just yeah, real quick here. There, you're talking about the fundamentals, and yet today we see that a downside surprise was met with buying action. Has a dovish Fed become more important to stock valuations than fundamental growth in the economy? I think that the uh, market structure has been destroyed. And I say that for a few reasons. When I came to Wall Street 50 odd years ago, the commissions were 25 to 50 cents a share, and the Volcker rule didn't exist. So the Bob Mnuchins of the world, the Stanley Shopcorns of the world, made markets, they carried inventory, they took risk. You can't do that anymore because there's commissions are near zero, and there's no vigorous, and there's no, there's no reward.
for risk taking. So the, the, the brokerage industry don't stabilize anymore. Secondly, 80% of the volume used to be done in the New York Stock Exchange. 80% of the volume today is done off board and dark pools. So the specialist system doesn't stabilize. And thirdly, for some unexplained reason, I've written to the SEC, they ignore me. You know, like my wife, basically. You know, <laughs> really? Basically, I told them, you know, in 1938, they enacted the uptick rule to deal with the abuses of the 29. It has worked effectively for 70 years. And in 2007, they eliminated the uptick rule. And that gave rise to a lot of these quantitative trading systems, which yeah. know nothing about value. They know everything about price. So they buy strength, they sell weakness. And when this market has a reason to go down, right now it does not have a good reason to go down. When this market has a reason to go down, it's going to go down so fast your head's going to spin. And, uh, and you're you know, going to be on the following day, Lee, so we can talk about it. I knew there was a reason that you and Tom King got on so well. You have that in common. Your wives ignore each other. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's good to catch up. Thank you, Mrs. Keene is saying, why don't you have Cooperman's checkbook? I mean, that's what I'm I know. You've got to work that out, Tom. Leon Cooperman there of Amiga. It is the General Motors Company. It has been around since 1908 through various and sundry iterations and has been reinvigorated with Mary Barr. She's chairman and chief executive officer of General Motors. Here's our David Weston. Thank you very much. So, Mary Barr, it's a good day for you, a good day for Will Durant, who started General Motors all those many years ago. So, uh, looking at the numbers, one of the first things I look at is the top line, the revenue, and then the profitability. The profitability, you did so much better than anybody expected, you actually almost put a shame to analysts. At the same time, it wasn't because of increased revenue. So, my real question is, how did you do that? How did you get so much more money in profit out of relatively flat er revenue? Well, I think it's a, it's a number of issues. First, um, strong demand for our full-size trucks and SUVs. I mean, the Chevrolet Silverado, the GMC Sierra, um, the the Escalade, the the Tahoe, et cetera, there is exceptionally strong demand for those products. And so I think that's what's driving a very high average transaction prices. Because the demand is so high, we've been able to continue to be very disciplined on incentives. And then our financing unit, GM Financial, has done an excellent job of taking advantage of higher used car prices and just a very strong market. We're also seeing recovery uh, and, and, you know, a return to, to strong sales in China. So across the board, uh, they, they contributed to the strong numbers. So you surprised perhaps some people by saying not only will we stick with our uh, guidance going forward for the rest of the year, but if anything, we think it's going to be toward, toward the upper end of that guidance. Uh, at the same time, you have the problem with chips. We talked about it last quarter, something like $1.5 to $2 billion being left on the table, as it were. I think that number still holds good. And yet, you're doing much better than some people across the street at Ford, for that matter, Fiat, Chrysler, Peugeot. Why? Well, again, there's not a lot of transparency between uh, the different automakers of what's happening. We're focused on GM, and I think what's been incredible is the work that we're doing with our purchasing group, our engineering group, our manufacturing group, and sales and marketing, and working with suppliers. You know, we've been working to build strong relationship with our suppliers for many, many years now. And there's just a team that is looking, understanding what chips are we going to have access to, how do we allocate those to our highest demand and, and, and products that we have limited or no ability 
ability to recover, because there's just such strong demand. We run those um, manufacturing operations uh, around the clock. And they're, they're just being creative and doing what engineers do of problem solving and, and uh, in some cases, re-engineering to get uh, the chips to um, the right products and to just um, find every opportunity we can to build a car trucker crossover and get it to the customer. So it's a mixed question, not just of the vehicles you sell, but also where you direct your chips, it sounds like. You want to direct it to the ones that really are the most important. Do, are you getting more chips, do you think, than you would have expected because of your purchasing department? Well, again, there's not a lot of transparency to say more than, uh, you know, we were very uh, clear uh, last year of what we thought the demand was going to be this year and the chips that we had ordered. And so, you know, we're continuing to work with the supply base on that. And uh, again, but it's I think it's looking for every opportunity and, and managing it centrally and also working uh, hand in hand with our JV in China. So uh, across the board, we are um, just uh, really being, I, I think the team is being really scrappy and finding ways that we can build um, the vehicles, not only full-size trucks and SUVs, but also our electric vehicle programs. And I think it's important to note that even with the challenges of the semiconductor sh uh, shortage, there is no impact on our electric vehicles, on our autonomous vehicles, and the growth initiatives that we've been talking about this first quarter. That was one of the questions I had, both for the Hummer that's coming out later this year and then the Lyric, which is coming out or sometime in the first half of next year. Is there going to be any delay because of the chip problem? Absolutely not. And I can tell you those vehicle programs are on track and uh, I'm really excited to have uh, customers get in those vehicles and drive them because I think they're going to be amazed. Uh, it, it, we understand the $1.5 to $2 billion number that was put up before, but can you give us some sense, those of us who don't understand the supply chain, if you had 100% of the chips you needed, what percentage are you getting now? Are you running at 50%, 75%? You know, uh, it's it's a very dynamic situation, and so uh, you know, again, I think it's every chip we have access to, we're making sure it gets into the vehicles where we have really strong customer demand. But it's something that changes every day, David. So I'm not going to put a number on it. Uh, this problem isn't going away in the sense that uh, as you go forward, you're going to make more and more cars that are going to require more and more chips. What is the longer term solution to this so we don't have this the sort of problem you have this year? Well, I think we are going to see recovery. We think Q2 will be uh, the weakest for the year. We'll see some recovery in Q3, Q4. Uh, and we're working on a lot of long-term strategies. I don't have anything to share right now, but um, there's a, 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 you know, a whole um, menu of things that we're working on, processes that we're changing. Um, so more to come later in the year of how we'll make sure we're never in this situation again. But believe me, we have a dedicated team working on that as well. Uh, when it comes to batteries, you've sort of vertically integrated it as it were, where the joint venture, where you're making your own batteries. Is there something like that, perhaps, that would make sense for GM? You know, I'm not going to take anything off the table. We're going to look at what uh, what we can do to make sure that we have the right number of automotive-grade chips uh, and that we it, it, it doesn't constrain our growth, because we see huge opportunity, not only with the product portfolio we have today, but with the strong electric vehicle products that we have coming. Uh, we hear some in Washington, both the Commerce Secretary and also I talked to one of your Michigan representatives yesterday, Haley Stevens, who suggested perhaps there needs to be some co-investment from the government as well as the private sector in chip production. Does that make sense from your point of view? 
I think making sure we have a, a, a secure supply chain um, at, for the growth that I think we're going to see, I think it's something that we all have to work together on. And we're having regular conversations with the administration and members of Congress to find the right solution. And uh, we'll continue to do that. In your presentation today, General Motors really lays out a fairly robust uh, program to really go to electric vehicles and to really deal with greenhouse gases over the longer term. You have very specific targets you're setting out there. How do you hope to achieve those? Well, I think it's making sure there's a whole ecosystem that when a customer looks at, can I buy an electric vehicle, they say, I'm going to have a better experience when I buy an electric vehicle. It's going to be a beautiful vehicle. It's going to be in the segment that I want to purchase, because we can't, you know, a person, if they want a, an SUV or a crossover, they're not going to buy a sedan. It's got to meet them in the market where they want. But then it's also making sure there's a robust charging infrastructure. And we're working on that as well. And that will be not only what we're doing, for instance, we're putting uh, uh, charging in our workplaces, but also uh, working with communities and then working with all the startups that are in this business, connecting those. Uh, we just made an announcement that uh, we have now, we're going to provide access to 60,000 chargers across, uh, across the country to really give uh, confidence to customers as they buy an EV, and if it, even if it's their only vehicle, that they're going to have a robust charging infrastructure. And I think all those things combined, you know, beautiful vehicles meets their needs, the right range, and then charging available, customers are going to move to EVs. And importantly, I think for many investors, people who watch your company, I saw in your presentation, you expect to have the same profit margins on EVs as you have on the so-called ICE, internal combustion engine vehicles. So as we move into the Ultium platform and continue to take cost out of the battery, that, that, is, that is our goal, to, to get there um, and, and have that uh, break even and then move beyond. But you also have to understand there's a different cost of ownership in an electric vehicle versus an, versus an internal combustion engine vehicle from a, you know, a gas, uh, uh, gas savings that you don't have to, you know, fuel up. So we've got to look at the whole equation, but we're on that journey, and I'm very pleased with the work that's going on with our battery technology to continue to take cost out and increase uh, energy density. I'm sure you're looking at supply chains that go beyond just microchips at this point. As you move into EVs, where are there possible weak spots going forward, and what are you doing to address those in terms of what you need, the supplies you need in order to manufacture the vast number of electric vehicles you're anticipating? Well, you know, as we look at uh, some of the, the key materials that need to go into vehicles, especially those that are quite expensive, we're looking at how do we reduce the need, you know, in, in each, uh, each vehicle, but then also working with uh, trusted partners in the supply chain to make sure that we have a secure supply and that's going to allow us uh, to grow. And so that's the work that we're—a uh, lot of it's done and a lot of it's underway right now. Uh, so, Mary, as you look forward to 2021, as I say, you've said you're maintaining your guidance. If anything, you'll be at the upper end. What are the vulnerabilities? What's the sensitivity on it that might actually have you fall short? Well, uh, you know, with the insights that we have right now, uh, we, we believe that that uh, guidance is correct with uh, where we think we're going to be from a semiconductor perspective. But I think, you know, one of the things that gives us a lot of comments is just the interest in our vehicles, the demand for our vehicles across the board. You know, whether it's a Chevy Trailblazer or a Silverado or an Escalade, you know, across our portfolio, actually very strong midsize crossovers as well. Uh, so the strength of our product line, 
growing. Um, the, the services that we're providing, we continue to see growth with OnStar. So there's a lot of moving pieces that give me a lot of uh, confidence in our ability to hit that, um, what we've said from a guidance perspective, and we're going to work it every day. And finally, Mary, do you have visibility in the demand for your electric vehicles? I think the Lyric, the new uh, electric SUV, you can order as of September. Do you have any sense whether people want the electric vehicles as opposed to your current vehicles? Well, we've seen, um, you know, we can see growing, <laughs> excuse me, growing demand for the for the Bolt EV. Can't wait for to get the EUV, the Bolt EUV, into the hands of customers. Um, you know, we've sold out the Hummer um, EV truck and had extremely strong demand um, over quite some time for the the Hummer EV SUV. So when it, we start selling the the Lyric, uh, which is one of the highest uh, customer feedback vehicles we've had of the just the beauty of that vehicle, when they actually get in to see it. Uh, I expect we're going to have a, a strong reaction in September as well. So okay. I'm very um, uh, right. uh, committed to right. the strength of our EVs. Okay, thank you so much to Mary Barr. She is the chairman and CEO of General Motors. Lisa Bram was in for Paul Sweeney. I'm Tom Keen. What we're going to do here, this has been so anticipated, and thank you folks for your support of having Doug Cass on. He's with Seabreeze. We'd launch into a lot of baseball talk and all that, and then we'd finally get to the equity markets. Today I'm going to ask one baseball question, and then we're going to get to the equity markets because I know you anticipate Mr. Cass's uh, views there, particularly at this historic time for the markets. Doug Cass, worst hitting since 1968. Game after game with two hits, three hits, should they move the mound back a foot? <laughs> that doesn't apply to the Yankees. Stanton's on the six and seven, six and seven in a row. I know, but you know, there's a lot of minor league action going on here with real concern over the lack of hitting in the game, pitching dominance. What was, what was wrong when uh, my cousin Sandy I agree. pitched against Marischal and, and the games were two to yep. one? I, I, there, was, there was beauty in that. The other thing is that. It will help those that are concerned about long baseball games, you know. Yeah, so I'm with you. I'm with you. But I'm just, I think a lot of people want to know uh, what you think about this. Uh, it's a great season. I, I'm watching the it's Padres as well. It's going to be a cold season for the Red Sox. Well, they're, they're, you know, they dipped under 600 ball, but they're doing better, leading in April. And as you well know, Doug, August is more important. Let's get to the equity markets. Douglas Cass, you've got some real caution out there. I know you did an Apple sure. trade here. You got out of it. I want to start first with a trading mentality out two weeks, three weeks. How do you apply capital right now? Okay. Um, Paul Krugman tweeted this morning before 7 o'clock. If it should happen to rain, we have umbrellas, he quoted Yellen. And he went on to say that panicked pundits say she's predicting a hurricane. The question I think a lot of investors are asking right now, as you just did with Lee Kuberman on TV earlier this morning, is whether we're in a market squall or a market hurricane. Are we at an important pivot point for the markets? Um, the Fed, to me, is often wrong and never in doubt. You just look at 2008 as an example when the Fed was obsessed over inflation, even as the financial crisis deepened. And there are many other examples of miscues. Me, I'm taking out my Jerry Ford 1974 wind buttons, the ready to go on my shirt. Um, my best proxy for inflation is the Mannheim used car index. Index. It's up 50% yeah. year over year. There's no inventory. Yeah. Prices are through the roof. Yeah. You talk to every single company, as I do, and Lee Cooperman does. There are bottlenecks, supply issues, higher costs of broad yeah. base and the prices being accepted by consumers 
um, in the face yeah. of Russia. Lisa Bramwood, so, Steve Matthews featuring that. He said, you know, our Fed Reserve yeah. reporter, he said it's a huge deal. That's right. amazing. There's the banner so, headline. Matthews is with Lee. Cass. <laughs> Yes. I think the question is, so are we undergoing a squall or a hurricane? Obviously, a squall is less lethal. It's a sudden gust of wind. It, it lasts only briefly. Yeah. Um, but the sustained winds of a hurricane, on the other hand, are devastating. And if you look at history, most market corrections are quick and squall like you. Well, I- 2018 and February of last year being the exception. And that helps to explain why I think most short sales are trades. Shorts may protect wealth, but long generally well, generate well. Leon Cooperman's point was he was a fully invested bear, that he saw all of the, the signs of a potential decline in markets. It might not happen now because just markets don't go down for no reason. What do you make of that? Are you also yeah, a fully I, I invested bear? Careful. I listened very carefully to Farrow's interview of Lee. You know, I'm a big fan. I worked for Lee for a number of years. Um, um, he said there are signposts to do risk. I'll tell you mine. Uh, number one is the market's indifference to big uh, beats to consensus. I'm thinking Amazon, Zoom, and even Apple here. Uh, AMD had multiple upgrades by the analytical community last week. Um, a big earnings beef and beat, and the stock is down $12. And the fact that the market has begun to falter despite the 10-year hanging around 1.6% means that the market isn't newsy. It's not going lower because of higher rates. It's just begun to weaken as demand seems to be stated. Remember, David Tepper famously said about a month ago that rates would be contained and that in turn stocks would head higher. The opposite is current. Rates are being contained, but stocks are moving, moving lower. Uh, the overall market is stalling, admittedly, at higher levels, despite strong real economic uh, data. Markets typically, at least, are about rate of change. We're now likely seeing peak rate of change in profits and economic growth, something that Lee mentioned. Finally, this is really the most important thing to me. We have basically been in a modern monetary theory position. It's been in place by the Fed. It's, it shows by their indifference towards recovery and improving high-frequency economic data. Now we are getting into what I describe as modern fiscal theory. And I think in the end, all violation of the fundamental laws of economic and financial common sense are paid for. But every bull th- seems to think that he will unload before the break. And, Tom, it's easy enough to burst the bubble, but to incise the bubble with a needle yeah. so that it subsides gradually yeah. is an operation of undoubted yeah. delicacy. Lisa, jump in here. You don't well, know who Jim Palmer is. Jump in here. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I want to unpack a little bit of what you said. The idea of the logic of markets and modern fiscal theory is what you're saying, that you're getting defensive, that you're going to cash or, or please insert what you're going to in order to be defensive ahead of a surge in inflation that forces the Fed's hand and forces valuations that we see in equities. Uh, Lisa, uh, I'm starting up in about two weeks a new hedge fund, Seabreeze Capital Partners LP. I can't wait to short. You know, I don't know if you guys are a fan of the movie Caddyshack, but there's, there's a line when, when Ty Webb is walking down with his um, caddy, Danny Noonan, at Bushwood Country Club, and he asks Danny whether he's in Russia. We're not in Russia, are we? We may not be in Russia, but we soon might be in Zimbabwe. 
Okay, now come on. You, you, I mean, Doug, I, I get the idea of framing shorts and the, you know, what makes us go here, the bull bear argument as well. But when you mention Zimbabwe, you're talking about commodity dynamics and you're talking about dollar dynamics. Are, are you seeing a big figure fragility to U.S. dollar here? Uh, the dollar's going to get killed, inflation and Well, give me a number. Steve spike. Roach, Steve Roach a is a dollar gloom. Bond, we're going to get a return of the bond vigilantes. And I guess, Tom, one has to ask a fundamental question. If printing and spending money was so easy, Lisa, and without adverse economic and market ramifications, why hasn't the Fed and the prior administration simply printed and spent throughout the last century? Well, that's a great question. The answer question. is obvious. There are adverse outcomes that come from undisciplined policy. Is there proof, though? And this is what I think a lot of people are watching is they're saying, look, in 2008, we printed money and it had no consequence. It frankly filled a hole that would have otherwise been potentially deflationary. Why is this time different? It's different because we have $28.5 trillion in debt. Um, 20 years ago, we had $4.8 trillion. That means to me, Lisa, um, that what was a 100 basis point increase yeah. in interest rates and as a consequence debt service is now only 20 basis points. And the reality is that nobody knows when the 12-year bull market is going to end. Um, but I think that climbing valuations, rising yeah. taxes, higher rates, and increased inflation – are bona fide I've never heard you this negative. Uh, Doug, you're, you're a great optimist of America and the, yeah, and the Los really Angeles Dodgers. Now. I've never heard you uh, this negative. But what I want to say is, Doug, good luck with your hedge fund. And I just, you know, I remember that time, Doug, where you were out in the course as you are down in Florida. And I heard you whisper, a former greenskeeper about to become <laughs> a master's One last champion. Thought. Go Yankees. Go Yankees. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Seabreeze Partners, he's starting a new hedge fund, a long, short Caddyshack fund yeah. uh, as well. I think more short than long at this point. I think I've seen Caddyshack, I'll say, 14 times. Really? Yes. This is another side of you, Tom. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's art. It's crafted every sentence. <laughs> This is going to be an important conversation. David Rubenstein joins uh, with peer-to-peer -peer conversation, uh, conversations right now and with Carlisle. What I love about Gina Raimondo, David, and just one of the great stories uh, out there is her ability over years to just keep moving. Her father lost his job at Boulevard. I actually remember when Boulevard Watch uh, collapsed in Rhode Island, and she made good on it in venture capital and in politics. Yes. I mean, she has an incredible story. She uh, came from a blue-collar family. As you point out, her father lost her job. Nonetheless, she went to Harvard, was near the top of her class, Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School, venture capitalist back in Rhode Island. She did, chose not to go to New York or Washington or L.A., yeah. went back to Rhode Island and really built a good business before she got into politics. Well, she got into politics and, and, you know, got what I would suggest high marks in a challenging Rhode Island. And it is a Rhode Island that all agree has a worn out infrastructure. She's focused on that right now. That's correct. Uh, infrastructure is something that Rhode Island really needed. She helped uh, reform that and also uh, did a lot in the pension area, elected governor twice. And uh, interestingly, uh, she chose to come to Washington. She could have stayed as Rhode Island governor, maybe run for president down the road herself. And she, she could not, uh, she could still do that, of course, down the road. 
but uh, she wanted to come to Washington and really help uh, President Biden do the kind of things he's trying to do. So she is a point person on the infrastructure plan right now. A point person with respect to infrastructure, also a point person with respect to our policies with China, especially considering the record trade deficit that we just printed uh, due to all of the imports from that nation. How does she talk about free markets, but also having a national focus? Can you square these ideas? Well, the administration um, hasn't really changed a lot of the Trump trade policies yet. They haven't taken down the, uh, uh, the tariffs with China or the tariffs with Europe. Um, they suspect that uh, some things may get negotiated with Europe. She implied that, but she didn't say it would get done for certain. And maybe the tariffs will come down to some extent. We don't know for certain. But right now, the administration is focused domestically on the infrastructure bill. And they don't really focus right now on new trade agreements. And I don't think they really want the kind of trade agreements that President Trump uh, negotiated or, or tried to negotiate. But there's an idea here that perhaps is behind Biden's proposals that the government can uh, foster good spending, that can generate corporate growth. How does she talk about that in terms of the commerce of the United States versus federally funded programs that are one and done? Well, the, usually the Commerce Department is often taking uh, CEOs overseas for trade missions to build plants and factories overseas. This administration is not as focused on that. They want to make certain that companies here are building more jobs here, and that's their focus. So I don't think that she's going to lead a lot of trade missions, so she didn't say she wouldn't do that. Right now, though, she wants to get the infrastructure bill through, and uh, they recognize they'll have to compromise on some parts of it for sure. David, do you have a working number on your in your head what that compromise is? I don't mean to, you know, the Washington parlor game, but does it come in, does it ease back a little bit to get done, or do you really see a much lesser statistic? Well, there are two different issues on the compromise. What's the size of the uh, infrastructure bill going to be? And there are two different infrastructure bills, the traditional <clears throat> infrastructure and the so-called care infrastructure. I think the administration would like more than half of what they propose. So it's unclear exactly what the number will be. The Republicans seem to be at a little bit less than half. And then the other issue is the taxes, the corporate taxes and income, personal income taxes. I think the administration made it clear they're prepared to compromise on taxes for sure, but they don't want to put a number out yet until they kind of know who they're negotiating with and what the other side really wants. I look, uh, David, at the compromise to come here on infrastructure, and it folds into capitalism in America. Should we have a more pure bill, or is Gina Raimondo going to say we can do a more complex bill? Well, I think she's one of several players that are going to try to make a difference here. But I think right now, this is something that's likely to go forward over the remainder of this year. I think the it's not going to get done that quickly. The infrastructure part is maybe easier. The harder part is the tax part. As you know, tax legislation usually takes a year or more to get through Congress, uh, particularly when it's dealing with tax increases. Uh, Senator Manchin has said that he could support a corporate tax rate of about 25 percent. The president's proposed, um, you know, a much higher rate. But I suspect some corporate tax rate between where it is now and 28 percent will probably get done. Uh, in terms of individual tax rates, it's unclear, but I'd be surprised if there is no individual tax increase at all. I suspect there'll be some. David, as an investor, as the co-founder and co-chair of Carlisle, how much are you relying on some of this infrastructure to get done? How much would it getting done or not getting done change your outlook and the way that you invest? Well, of course, infrastructure is something that the country could benefit from. And the infrastructure the president's talking about would be good for the economy. There's no doubt it would create jobs and there's no doubt it would help in many different areas. For example, telecommunications, our infrastructure on cell phone towers is really 
um, not exactly first world. It can be much better, as we all know, <clears throat> when, when trying to use cell phones and the, and the calls drop. There are many different things I think would help the economy, but it's hard as an investor to say, well, if this bill passes, the impact will be felt in two or three years. I'll make an investment right now to take advantage of it. It's too unclear right now. Although there is a question about the optimism, the balance of risks, that if there isn't some sort of optimism about future growth, it's hard to invest in assets at these valuations. Leon Cooperman just said he was a fully invested bear and talking about how he can line up all the arguments for why markets should go down, but they just aren't right now. What's your view on that? Are you a fully invested bear or are you looking out to some of these programs and saying it could change the trajectory of this recovery? <clears throat> Well, of course, the economy has been pretty good uh, the last couple of months. And because of the stimulus, it's like they continue to do pretty well for some time. Uh, the Secretary of Treasury sort of walked back her comments on interest rate increases. So I suspect the markets will do well today as well, because there was some concern yesterday about interest rate increases possibly coming along. But I'd say for the next year or so, maybe two years, I think the economy is likely to do quite well. Down the road, two or three or four years from now, it's hard to predict. At some point, things will slow down. But the stimulus mm -hmm. is still working its way through the economy. David, thank you so much. Really look forward to Secretary Mondo with David Rubenstein. Of course, peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Now joining us for a four-hour conversation is Michael Faroli. He's with JP Morgan. He has a brilliant essay out with Team Kasman on Friday on goods and services, and on this odd job economy. But Michael Ferroli, I gotta rip up the script over what we saw. You and I adore Benjamin Friedman of Harvard Economics. He's one of our most important thinkers. And I'm gonna go back to Benjamin Friedman, The Moral Consequences of Growth, his classic book of 20 years ago. Explain right now the moral consequences of debt as we wring our hands over something as strange as the debt ceiling. Uh, so I agree with where you were going in your previous conversation. It is kind of odd to be focusing on the debt ceiling at this time. Uh, you know, certainly over the last few years, we haven't worried that much about the deficit. And at this point, as you say, Congress selects revenues, they select spending. The debt ceiling should be a residual of that, and the fact that it's a, uh, uh, a concern <laughs> is a bit, uh, a bit unique to the U.S. My understanding is that this can be extended via reconciliation, so hopefully this shouldn't be too much of a headache for the markets or for the economy this year, but that's something we'll have to just wait and see. As far as I understand, looking at this Treasury refunding announcement, the auction size is the longer end left unchanged. Yields just a little bit higher off the back of this announcement by a couple of basis points or so. Michael, just going into the payrolls report this Friday, how big are you looking for that number in America? How big are you looking? North of a million? And what are the risks around some of these companies just not being able to meet the demand by not being able to hire the people? Yeah, so we're right near consensus looking for a million. Uh, we think the risks are fairly balanced. Obviously, this morning's ADP numbers suggest there could be some downside. Uh, but as has been the case over the past uh, 12, 13 months, the range of uncertainty is obviously quite a bit larger than normal. Uh, there are some technical factors here in terms of how we seasonally adjust the numbers that could really skew things one way or the other. Uh, but either way, it should be a pretty big number. But I would, if we have a miss of a couple hundred thousand on either side of that, I wouldn't really change uh, my thinking about the overall course of the recovery. So expect noise, but expect it to be a, a pretty big number. Mike, think. do you think labor shortage translates into higher wages in the next couple of months? There's going to be this compositional issue in the number on Friday. But beyond that, do you think it does? 
Yeah, and I think you're right to say the next couple of months, right? So when we think about some of the issues that are weighing on labor supply, uh, one of them is working parents having to be at, you know, not having to be, but liking to be at home in this kind of unusual uh, schooling environment we've had. Another may be, and this is a little more controversial, that the uh, the unemployment insurance bonuses may have raised people's res reservation wages and made them a little more picky in what jobs uh, they accept. You know, both of those are temporary. So school schedules should come back to normal in September. That bonus payment ends in September. Uh, but in the next few months, I do think it may be, uh, you know, a little bit tight in the labor supply uh, front. And perhaps we saw a little evidence of that last Friday. We had a much, uh, a fair bit stronger than expected employment cost index. Uh, which was kind of ignored, but uh, but that could be one of the you know signs that we are facing some labor sh supply shortages. But I would think they're somewhat transitory in nature, and that they should we should loosen things up. I think as we get into the fall and winter. What'll make you think, Michael, that they're not transitory? That perhaps there is some credence to that idea that the benefits uh, made people a bit more picky in terms of what they're willing to accept with respect to wages, in addition to rising input costs, in addition to some of the constrained supply chain issues that have caused prices to go up just generally. Right. So I think we want to distinguish wages and prices. For wages, uh, we're just going to have to, you know, if if those factors really do subside after September, then we can take stock of how data developments after September start to play out. Uh, and we're just going to have to wait uh, uh, until then. I think on uh, prices, it's a little trickier. Uh, so certainly some of these bottlenecks are going to be putting upward pressure on certain categories. Uh, you know, I think one area that might be useful in the past, the Fed has kind of drawn attention to things like the Dallas Fed trim mean and what measures like that do is strip out extreme movements both to the upside and downside to get a better measure of the central tendency of inflation. Things like that may be yeah. worth looking at, I think, over the next few months. Michael, just to wrap up here, we got those ADP numbers. They came in disappointing, and you've got all these people coming out and saying, A, they don't correlate with the monthly jobs report out of the government, and B, they're really noisy and messy, and their methodology doesn't capture people who are getting rehired by the same company. What would you say in terms of the ADP's predictive ability? Uh, even in the best of times, it hasn't been great. Um, you know, over the past year, you've had misses of over a million. Obviously, we've had pretty big, big swings over the past year. Uh, you know, I think, but given the range of misses, uh, what, what we saw this morning isn't that far from what I think we and the consensus are expecting for private payrolls uh, on Friday. So I would say, you know, perhaps this takes out a little bit of uh, risk of a really huge upside or downside surprise on Friday. Michael, got to leave it there. And Mike, I've got to say, it's nice to see a fuller office over yeah. at JP Morgan, too. I was just going to say, you he's know? whipping him into order there. Yes, yeah. slowly. <laughs> it's bustling. With the help of Mr. Diamond as well. Michael Ferrotti there. He's got six JP interns Green screen. Him. Mike, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.